And one of the biggest things that I have said is on the ballot, or looking like it might get on the ballot, is the redistricting petition. Initiative Petition 57. If it gets on the ballot, it'll have a new number. We have had the proponents on it. They've had a chance to make their case. Coming on the line now is Becca Yerbalash, the executive director of Our Org, and it's a big coalition organization that was organized by labor and progressive organizations to advocate primarily on ballot initiatives. And Becca Yerbalow is here to join us to talk about Initiative Petition 57 and maybe some other stuff. Becca Yerbalow, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Oh, boy. I don't know. I don't even know why I asked that question because I don't have a great answer. Yeah, it's true. I sh- the question I should ask is, any silver lining? Anything going good that we should know about? Uh, that is a really good question. I mean, the fact that folks continue to show up in different ways um, to support the movement for Black Lives, um, I'm inspired by that every day. Cheers. So, first, why don't you give your introduction of our Oregon? I think lots of people are familiar, but some people might not be. Sure. So we are a 501c3 political nonprofit who've been around for about 15 years. As you said, it's a coalition of organizations, um, and we specialize in ballot measures, and we kind of watch the process from soup to nuts, as I like to say, from the titling process and the filing process, um, making sure to protect the integrity of the system um, to the, the end part where we actually run ballot measure campaigns. I have said the biggest thing that I think could get on the ballot is the one that would have the biggest impact on future policymaking in Oregon and our intersection with federal policymaking is, in fact, the potential of Initiative Petition 57 getting on the ballot. Is that an overstatement? How important do you think this initiative could potentially be? I think the initiative will have sweeping ramifications on our democracy um, that are concerning and that voters should be very concerned about, especially who this measure excludes from the process. Talk about your concerns. Sure. So, you know, the concept of an independent commission can be an important democracy reform when done the right way. And unfortunately, this measure gets it dangerously wrong. So this constitutional amendment does more harm to Oregonians who've been historically and systemically left out of our democracy. It it excludes literally hundreds of thousands of Oregonians. Um, And young people in particular, new citizens, low-income Oregonians, black and indigenous and other people of color in particular are excluded because of the requirements. It also punishes and excludes Oregonians for being civically engaged by banning them from serving on the commission. Um, A couple of other important fatal flaws, excuse me, is that this constitutional amendment would repeal the current process to vastly over-represent one political party um, compared to the registration numbers in this state. So I understand them I, an, yeah. mm-hmm. I understand that last piece, Becca. The, uh, and one of the critiques that came up previously is it gives Democrats and Republicans, or the first and the second biggest party, I believe is how it's worded in the initiative petition, the first and second biggest party, the same amount of representation on that panel, even if the second biggest party was half as big as the biggest party. And right now the, biggest, the second biggest party is what, about two-thirds as big as the biggest party? Yeah, Democrats, if you look at registration, they're about 35% of registered voters in Oregon. Republicans are 25%, and non-affiliated are nearly 33. And there's actually no guarantee in this measure that non-affiliated voters will have any representation. You know, they purport to have these three buckets, one for Democrats, one for Republicans, and one for other. 
But other is not only non-affiliated voters, folks who haven't chosen a party, but also all minor parties. And because there are no hard and fast requirements, it could all be non, uh, minor party representation in that third bucket. And so that there is a very real potential that one third, more than one third of voters will not be represented on this commission. You made another claim, and that is that it leaves out important parts of our community. Bolster that case. Say more about that. Sure. So the measure requires you to be, has been consistently registered with the same party or no party for three years. So if you think about that, young people who are registering for the first time or who registered two years ago would be disqualified um, and banned from participating. New citizens um, who are just now eligible to register, but regardless of how civically engaged they've been up to this point, are banned from registering because of this requirement. Low-income organizations, Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, the bucket um, they fall in is new registrants. So it's a presidential year, and we see an uptick in folks registering to vote for the first time or registering to vote after they've lapsed um, in order to engage in the democracy and vote in a presidential election. We have seen, um, consistently research has shown, that they skew um, over-representing low-income and people of color. And so by saying if there you have to have three years of consistent registration with a particular party, any new entrant to democracy in the last two years and 11 months or somebody who is on again, off again a little bit as related to maybe the presidential election, those folks don't get to play. That's exactly right. A cynic might say that really you're just trying to preserve your power, that what's really going on is that the large big D Democratic Party establishment it's, and the organizations that uh, sort of comprise it are trying to make sure that they can maintain some degree of a hold on the redistricting process. Uh, what's your, what would be your response to that critique? Well, first of all, our organ isn't a partisan organization, um, so I think that, um, first and foremost, is a false claim. We have a lot of folks who are part of our coalition who don't align themselves with any um, particular party. And I would also say why, if, we, if there are concerns with the current system, we should approach it um, thoughtfully, engage the most impacted people and the folks who are least represented in our democracy in designing the policy um, that we move to. And I don't understand why we would... Um, repeal uh, our current process and amend our constitution to put something like this measure that's so deeply flawed and exclusionary um, into, into place. What were your critiques with the design? Not, I don't mean the result of that design, but the process of the design with this petition. Well, a couple of things. I think the proponents have talked um, extensively about how this is modeled out of the California Redistricting Commission. Um, and we've seen what happens um, when uh, Oregon looks at kind of cookie-cutter versions of policies that are um, imported from other states. And it just doesn't make sense for Oregon. And I'd also point out that there is some recent um, news articles on the fact that the California redistricting um, experiment is failing um, people of color in California. In fact, their first pass um, at appointing commissioners um, made it so that no representation from the Latinx community is on the commission, which is ridiculous considering um, their demographics in California. So why would we why would we bring a cookie cutter version of a failed model from one state um, into Oregon? 
The other thing I would mention is around process. Oh, can we pause there for just a second? Oh, I, sure. I, this is a piece I didn't know. You're saying the thing that we're voting on is essentially the same uh, piece of legislation that California has already done? Yes. The proponents often say that this is based on the California model. And in the and California model, been... and in the California model, the your argument is that your fears are seen to be realized there, that folks who are newer entrants to the process, people of color, historically marginalized and disempowered communities have not been at the table to shape districts? That's exactly right. If you look at California um, in terms of who applied to serve on their commission, 59% were men and the majority of the applicants were white. And through their random um, process, they only, they did not select any representatives from the Latinx community. And my fear is that this measure, um, which actually has additional flaws um, because it was tweaked slightly in ways that actually do more harm. My fear is that that will be exactly what happens in Oregon. The proponents have also talked about how they don't believe this measure or this policy. They do not purposely want it to be representative of anything. And so what that, what that results in is that there is really um, a huge risk for communities who haven't historically had a voice in our democracy to continue to not have a voice, and in fact, lessen the voice that they do have currently, because at least now, folks can vote for their legislator, and so for whatever reason they have an issue with them, they can hold them accountable through elections. On the commission, once they're appointed, and the first pass of appointment is through um, administrative law judges who are you know, unelected and unaccountable, and they basically get to choose who they believe qualifies. And then the Secretary of State develops a system by which they randomly select. And again, we've seen what happens in random selections in California. Folks get left out. Do we have a legislature that is reflective of the state now? No. Where are we falling short? Uh, I think we're falling short in particular um, around um, communities of color. And I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done, and I think there's a um, large uh, coalition of folks who are deeply committed to making sure that that changes, from recruiting diverse candidates to ensuring that we support their success when they're on the ballot. Are Republicans, from an ideological or party breakdown perspective, are Republicans getting the representation that they merit uh, in the state of Oregon? Uh, I would... I mean, I would put that question to them. They clearly, if you look at the funders actually of this measure, they clearly are trying to put a thumb on the scale through this measure. Again, we, we mentioned the fact that they actually on this commission get more representation than, than they have um, in the state. And if you look at who's funding it, it's kind of the traditional lineup of Republican and corporate interests, you know, from failed gubernatorial candidate Newt Bueller to the folks who uh, gave money to oppose the recent um, homelessness services measure in the spring. So it is, it's clear who's behind it. It's clear that what they want to accomplish, which is to essentially tip the scales in their favor. So this is a big claim, right? And, and I haven't looked at the CNEs, the contribution expenditure reports, for the measure. But say more about that, or if there's data we can look at, right? Because listeners sure. understand now that you're opposed to this thing, and so they'll see you know, the data through that filter. But I think seeing that data would be really useful. Say more about that, uh, about who's funding this thing and where people can find out for themselves. 
Sure. So it's um, all publicly accessible data. Um, so you can go to or starb on the Secretary of State's website and check it out. And I actually have the CMEs in front of me. So um, one of their largest um, one-time contributors was the Oregon Business and Industries Issues Pack that gave $35,000. The Standard has given $20,000, which is an insurance company. The Oregon Association of Realtors has given $10,000. The Oregon Auto Dealers has given $10,000. The Oregon Beverage Pack has given $10,000. Um, actually, the standard has given more than that, and they appear in here a number of times. The logging industry um, has shown up. Um, so, yeah, it's very clear. You know, you can tell um, a lot about an initiative by who their friends are. So if you um, go to this publicly accessible data, you will see who is behind this measure. Um, and if you compare that to two measures and candidates that they've supported in the past, you'll get a good sense of what this measure does. How come, maybe it's sort of obvious, right? But how come, what is your fear of why the, of why some of the corporate lobby or a good chunk of them are supporting, Oregon Business Industry is the, uh, is what, the new name of Oregon's now leading what corporate lobby organization. Uh, spell out why you think they're supporting this and prioritizing this and putting five figures into it each. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it hinges on the fact that Republicans are overrepresented on um, this commission. Um, in fact, it'll, it's written into the Constitution and from here until eternity that they will continue to be overrepresented on this commission. And with the current makeup of the Oregon legislature, um, they are looking for a different avenue to make an influence and make sure that they can elect candidates who support their corporate interests. Is a congressional seat at stake based on this initiative? We're gaining a new one, right? Oregon is going to get a new congressional seat mm -hmm. in 2021, almost certainly. And who draws the lines is going to have a significant impact on what happens. Tell us about your the scenarios you see new congressional district drawing happening. Yeah, before I do, I just want to actually point out um, the fact that you brought up that congressional redistricting is also in here. Um, is another fatal flaw of this measure. So this measure seeks to repeal and amend our Constitution around state legislative um, redistricting, as well as insert into our Constitution new language around congressional redistricting. And our initiative system and our Constitution is clear that that is um, an unconstitutional way to put a measure on the ballot if you're amending two different parts of the Constitution. We haven't talked about the the legal um, uh, issues and ramifications of this measure, but right now it is currently being considered in Marion County Court, the constitutionality of this measure. And I, I think when you had the proponents on last time, they talked about their lawsuit. So they came up against the last day to turn in signatures and decided, well, we gotta change the rules of the game because we're not gonna be able to uh, cross the finish line. So they sued in federal court um, and now they've had a reduced um, threshold in terms of what they have to turn in, as well as an extended timeline. And I just want to spend a little bit um, of time, because I think this is so important for your listeners who care about our democracy and the integrity of our initiative system. Their move has, can have and is already having um, significant sweeping ramifications on our democracy. In fact, within just a couple of weeks, there was another group, gosh, I, I think they're, they're called the Move Oregon's Border for Greater Idaho. <laughs> They um, used the same claims that IP57 did and said, well, we didn't qualify because of COVID, so you, know, you should lower the threshold for us. Um, and that's just the beginning of folks getting in the queue 
using this court case um, to, again, diminish the integrity of our democracy. Was that court case decided wrong? Greater Idaho, by the way, is this idea that you'll take the Republican portions, the sort of red swaths of Oregon. You'll take some of the red swaths. I'm trying to get to the map here because I think you also. I think they also take then even some of Northern California, not Northwestern California, sort of Northeastern California, and then I think they head out to. Uh, I, I think they even head out to maybe some of. I don't know, Wyoming or Montana, uh, and makes Idaho this enormous state, uh, bastion of red America, so goes the idea. Uh, do you think that case was wrongly decided? I, was, it, was it Mossman? Who made that decision? Um, it was Judge Michael McShane. McShane, thank and you. In listening, yeah, in listening to the proceedings, I think one of the things that's hard, and actually something that our organ is working on um, to democratize and, and make available information on how ballot measures work, how they're run. Um, so honestly, more folks um, in particular who haven't had access to democracy can get their issues before voters. But it is a hard and complicated system. And I think one of the things that's unfortunate is that the proponents um, vastly overstated the fact that they uh, think that they would have qualified anyway. I mean, you'll notice there are, of course, um, folks like us who are raising concerns, but there really isn't yet an organized um, opposition, mainly because folks who have been watching it had no, I mean, we were almost guaranteed that they weren't going to qualify because we saw no evidence before COVID um, of a well-run campaign. And so without this court case, they would not have um, gotten on the ballot. And again, I think they misrepresented um, uh, how their chances uh, were pre-COVID to qualify. It did. I did find it interesting. I actually was a little bit surprised at the result in court mm -hmm. because the argument was it can't be done. You can't, during COVID-19, get on the ballot. And I remember because we were reporting this, right, and I would say this thing, and then the very next story I'd be reporting uh, would be about how one of the drug initiatives mm -hmm. got on the ballot. And so I said, wait a minute, it can't get done unless you're doing it about mushrooms or marijuana or something. Right, no, it's true. There are two other measures, Initiative Petition 34 um, and Initiative Petition 40, uh, 44, who managed um, to make the ballot um, under COVID conditions. And I'll also bring up a local initiative here that turned in enough signatures to qualify, and that's the um, Universal Preschool Now. Um, they started long after the redistricting measure, um, and they managed to turn in enough signatures to qualify. So it's a false claim to say that they um, didn't qualify because of COVID. They didn't qualify, honestly, because uh, voters weren't supporting their issue. Let's talk about that support. My impression is it's something like this. I mean, you have, you've had Eric Holder come out, Obama's former attorney general, and say, we've got to change how we do districting. We have lots of, of uh, good democracy better democracy nerds, people, in fact, not too different than me, who are making the case that you, and their key argument is, you don't want politicians drawing their own districts. You don't want politicians choosing their voters. You want voters choosing their elected officials. Uh, and my impression is that something like this is pretty darn popular. If it gets on the ballot, it's likely to pass. Uh, you said there's not enough support. That's why they didn't get on the ballot. Do you think that this gets on the ballot, it passes? I think that's a good question. I mean, I talked earlier about the fact that the concept, when done right, um, can be an important democracy reform. But I think once um, voters hear about these fatal flaws and who's excluded from participating, um, I think, I mean, they'll have to, uh, they will 
they will reject the measure because of its fatal flaws, hopefully look beyond the kind of 30-second elevator speech talking point and understand how much damage this initiative will do to our democracy. What's the redistricting reform that's been done right? Are there any of them that you like that have actually passed in a state? I've looked at a couple of models in municipal redistricting where they have put together a commission and removed a lot of barriers to participation. I mean, for example, in some municipalities, um, folks do not even have to be a registered voter, which in my opinion makes a lot of sense because they live in the community, they'll be impacted by decisions made by elected officials. Um, And we all know that folks have access, uh, barriers to access in terms of registering and participating in our democracy. So, um, but the point I would make is that there can be a model developed, but it has to involve and come from and center the most impacted people and, and the least represented currently in our democracy, and that's not what this measure does. I'll give an impression, and that impression is, and, and feel free to disabuse me of it, and thank you again. We're listening, by the way, to Becky Urbala, the head of uh, our Oregon, our Oregon uh, probably the leading constabulary on the uh, on the progressive side with respect to ballot initiatives. And we're talking about Initiative Petition 57, which would change the way districts are drawn. We've had proponents on it. We've actually had proponents on it twice uh, and wanted to make sure that we are given, even if even if I'm a little soft in, in each given interview, want each uh, proponent or opponent to have their genuine case to make their strongest case so you can make your decision as a listener. Uh, here is another description of the dynamic that redistricting reform, that some some commission system to draw lines might be well and good. But if Eric Holder gets a bunch of Democrats to like the idea, gets a bunch of good government folks to like the idea, and if the kinds of states that listen to somebody like Eric Holder, and by that I mean a former major Democratic figure, and people who care about democracy, and in fact democracy nerds say the pro-democracy coalition sort of says, okay, let's do this thing, and a whole bunch of blue states, oh, not too different than Oregon, pass it, but then red states say, we don't listen to Eric Holder, we don't listen to what they, we're not prioritizing democracy as highly, we're kind of rolling with Trump. And then red states don't do it, that we could have a less representative Congress than we have right now and a less representative set of state legislature than we have right now. And that a lot of the debate on the, uh, on the details of, the, of how the piece of legislation is drawn up is really maybe subordinate to the big dynamics that really what people are worried about or really what opponents are worried about is a further Republican shift in how uh, representation results relative to registration numbers. Is that, a, is that too, a consp- too conspiratorial a view? Is that too big picture a view? Does that miss the most important stuff? I mean, I think that's a critical uh, point for this particular measure, the fact that it actually will result in overrepresentation of Republican voices and redrawing our lines. So I, I think it's a good point for folks to make. I also... There, because there are no um, there are no hard and fast requirements on who should who can and should serve. Um, I'm sorry, who should serve on this? We could very well likely result in an all white male commission or all um, Portland focused commission because there is nothing in the measure. Um, it's only aspirational language around um, population and diversity, but there's nothing in the measure that says it has to be. There has to be representation from certain areas or regions of Oregon or um, demographics. 
and I should I got to cite my dad's argument, which is he thinks it should be based on what I said. He thinks it ought to be done nationally. He said if we're going to have a change in how districts are drawn, that we should have it be a national system, uh, and therefore one that gets us to an objective that of accurate representation of representation in legislatures and Congress that reflects where we are as uh, as a national community. Can you win this in court? It looks like the last uh, it, it looks like the last case didn't go your way. I know that the Secretary of State, as a Republican, has been uh, is going along with McShane's order. Uh, the uh, Attorney General, who's a Democrat, is trying to challenge this thing. Any prognostications for the court fight? Yeah, I think there are two legal avenues. One I mentioned earlier, which is um, determining the constitutionality of the measure, and that's here in state court, filed in um, Marion County, and we'll. Uh, hear that case in the next couple of weeks. And then the state did um, make a choice to appeal to the Ninth Circuit. Um, we have, we're looking at a timeline of sometime in mid-August, um, seeing a ruling from the Ninth Circuit. And we're really glad that the state um, decided to appeal because, again, this has sweeping ramifications, long-term implications on our democracy and the integrity of our initiative system. If this ruling is allowed to stand, then it really opens up the floodgates to special interests claiming um, different circumstances kept them from the ballot and um, asking the courts to put them on without voter a whole lot of voter support. Something i got to ask in fairness, you had pointed out some of the donors to this thing and said in, from your perspective it's a, it's a bunch of sort of the larger corporate power in the state that's funding this thing. One might also say, well, yeah, that's kind of where the money is. you got to raise the money from somewhere. And if you're not going to raise the money from labor, you got to raise the money from somewhere. One thing I failed to mention, though, that among the groups that are pushing this are groups like Common Cause and League of Women Voters. What do you think they're missing? What do you think they got wrong? And not to rehash the particular policy elements, but there's some groups that people really respect that are pushing this thing. It's not just standard insurance and organ business and industry. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for them, um, but it looks to me as though um, their enthusiasm for the general concept um, has put them ahead of the implications of this particular policy. In fact, the proponents, we've heard, heard um, Norm from the League of Women Voters say repeatedly in different settings that this may not be the best measure, um, but it's better than the current system. And um, you know, there is a lot of acknowledgement that even from the proponents that there are flaws in this measure. And again, it goes back to process. Um, I wish they would have taken a concept and turned it over to uh, the folks who are least represented and most impacted by our democracy, who would have identified, for example, this, this barrier of having been registered for three years. If you have a lived experience having not been registered for three years, you could have raised your hand in the development of that policy process and said, you know what, that excludes me. And so it really goes back to who's at the table to craft the policy, regardless of the intention. I want to say thanks to Becky Urbalau. Well, we did get this one question that I should pass along. Would districting like this even be an issue if we could change the two-party system? Does this let us know that right now we've got almost as many non-affiliated voters as we have Democrats? Right? It's like a million Democrats and like 950,000 non-affiliated voters and what, 700,000 Republicans? Does this suggest that we ought to shake up the party structure of our democracy? Um, I think that's an intriguing conversation um, for another time. <laughs> Becky Yerbelow, head of our Oregon, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you so much for having me.